You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. We continue to look at the theme of after death, what is next? Looking at the hardest part of it now, this week and yet next week, if you can endure it, and I was saying to Pastor Light, it's not easy to endure this subject week after week, but we will hope to see the last portion of looking at the unbeliever's fate next Sunday. It's so important that we understand this. It's the backdrop of the good news of the gospel. I read today from teaching of Jesus, rather familiar, Luke chapter 16. It's a story Jesus told entitled, The Rich Man and Lazarus. Luke 16, beginning at 19. Please follow in your Bible. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, who lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers." Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Our Father, may we consider this once again in solemn awe, and yet in clarity that this is your Son speaking, teaching us of what must be avoided at all cost and can be. We thank you for the grace in him that makes that possible. In Jesus' name, amen. My three years younger sister 
whose name is also Carol, same as my wife's, was a great lover of the actress Shirley Temple. Now, you who are older remember Shirley Temple. Maybe if you're a young person, you say, who's that? But you wouldn't have said, who's that, if you were alive in America in the 1930s. Shirley Temple was the light of the silver screen, an adorable little girl with her golden curls who tap danced her heart out in film after film. And when those films were on at our house, they were mandatory watching. If I dared to try turn on a cowboy program, mom would intervene and say, we have to watch Shirley Temple. Well, I remember Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. Shirley played a little girl there named Rebecca. And uh, in the course of the film, there was a place where she had a serious talk about the future with a girl named Emma Jane. And Rebecca was telling Emma Jane that it had been her intention to become a missionary someday. And she told about this, and she uh, said, though, that she had changed her mind. She wanted to become a missionary first to see the heathen saved from hell, she said. But she had changed her mind because, quote, it's not as though the heathen really need me. I'm sure they'll come out all right in the end. They'll find God somehow. But Emma Jane responds and says, what if they die first? Well, Rebecca said, they can't be blamed for that. They don't die on purpose. Well, unfortunately, Shirley Temple was a better tap dancer than theologian. People do die, and they are blamed for what they have ignored and rebelled against in this life. Last week, we saw how the grim biblical subject of hell as a destination for human unbelief can so easily be de-emphasized in the church today, often on purpose or even just by neglect, just by not bringing it up. It can almost disappear from our theology. And yet, a fact has to be faced that no biblical spokesman put more stress on this subject than Jesus himself. And last week, in the course of looking at other things, I skimmed just six or seven verses from the Gospel of Matthew, and that wasn't all that he said even in that one gospel. And they were grim, iron-edged words about what unbelief would face in eternity. It's not a practical goal for us to think that I can study for you all the words of Jesus Christ on this subject. If I was to map out a series of, of greater sermons, I'd be going right on, and I'd be preaching on hell on Christmas Sunday. You wouldn't like that very much. There are so many things that are said we must be content with some summaries, and, and maybe it's almost all we can take emotionally. And yet, Jesus was the one who compared hell to the valley of Hinnom, which was a real place outside of Jerusalem, a valley that over time became the place where refuse was piled up. It was really the Jerusalem garbage dump. And it seems that even bodies were put there, you know, the, the bodies of the poor that nobody had money to bury might be thrown there, and animal carcasses and so on. And there were fires burning in this 
valley of Hinnom to consume the refuse. It was a terrible place, a smelly place, an awful place. And Jesus referred to hell with that image. And the word Gehenna, valley of Hinnom, comes into the vocabulary of Scripture. He compared hell to a prison. He compared it to outer darkness. And it was Jesus who used the vocabulary of it containing fire at least 20 times. Now, the 20th century scientist and outspoken atheist Bertrand Russell had no fear about assaulting Christian faith, and he wrote this one time. Russell said, There is one serious defect as I evaluate the moral character of Jesus of Nazareth, and it is the fact that he believed in hell. You hear what he's saying? Bertrand Russell was a lot bolder than most people. He was ready to say that the fact that Jesus believed in and clearly proclaimed a doctrine of hell made him morally defective. Now, most people would just look away and say, well, I can't quite take what he teaches, and and I choose just to look aside from it. Russell looked at it and said, anyone who teaches that is a moral degenerate, including Jesus. Well, today I'm focusing on just this one premier text rather than scattershot all over the place. Familiar story, we think of it as a parable, although it's not called a parable. It's a very unusual story told in Luke 16, 19 and following. Now, I'm not unaware of the fact of the wider context of this story is the abuse of wealth. If you back up and read forward to it, you'll find that what Jesus is talking about in the beginning of chapter 16 is the parable of the shrewd manager or the unjust steward. He's variously called, and the theme is is wrong use of wealth. But in that first parable, the first story of Luke 16, here's a man who, although a scoundrel and although dishonest, was able to take his abuse of wealth and turn it to serve good ends, and even give up things that might have been his for some kind of worthy end. And Jesus actually commends that, even though it involved a man who was quite a scoundrel. Well, then comes this story, and the the link, of course, is the abuse of wealth in the life of this extremely rich man who lived in selfish luxury all the time. He played the ultimate fool because his wealth was only for himself. You can hardly even imagine him giving five bucks to the United Way or anything like that. He had the best all the time. The fact that he wore purple in that time was a a designation of a purple person. A purple person. Well, we'll get this right here somewhere. A person who was really almost at the level of royalty. He was way at the top, the top one quarter of one percent of the whole society, and yet he lived entirely for himself. Now, according to the Son of God, there's a thrust and a teaching here that goes away from just telling us about the abuse of wealth and brings in another whole subject that is our concentration today. And I believe that this one teaching does contain or at least capsulize the main thrust of Jesus on this subject of what hell is like. According to him, hell is the ultimate end of unbelief, ruled over by a just, sovereign God. It is 
an irrevocable, spiritual dead end that involves both pain and great regret. Now remember, believing souls, if you can't stand the theme of of today's sermon, you have to set it against the, the wonderful truth of the gospel. The believing soul is with Christ at death. We've looked at that wonderful assurance. Places like 2 Corinthians 5 and Philippians 1 and others that teach us being absent from the body is being present with the Lord, but just as there is bliss promised to the believer, there's horror and pain and woe, worse than we can imagine, promised as the end of unbelief. First of all, very quickly today, I want you to notice verses 19 to 22 to just sketch in the background here and see the great contrast between two lives and two deaths. The unnamed rich man and the beggar Lazarus, and by the way, this is not the same Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead, the brother of Mary and Martha, just a coincidental name, not the same person. These two were polar opposites in their lives. The rich man, I don't know if that program Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous is on anymore. I don't see it. Probably it's been discontinued. But this guy might have been on that program, only it probably should have been called Lifestyles of the Rich and Clueless. That's where he was. Selfish extravagance 24-7. And he probably would have said, I'm worth it. He looked at nobody else from any standpoint of altruism or doing for someone else in need. Money, the idea that money brought social responsibility would have been a blank in his thinking. Now there at his gate was this unwelcome sight, and that's what Lazarus was to the rich man, just a, a nasty sight to look away from every time he went in and out his gate. This beggar who laid there, we don't know if he was lame or something, the reading that dogs licked his sores make us think there must have been some condition of being an invalid that he couldn't even get away from these dogs. But why was he there? He was there because the garbage from this rich man's table was highly desired by him. And if he could just eat the garbage, that would have been the goal of his day. Certainly, here's a pitiful man, utterly rejected and helpless. And you're given to understand that the two were opposites in faith. I remember as I used to read this, it it always bothered me just slightly that nothing is said. It doesn't actually state that the poor man, the beggar, is a man of faith. It's just implied. And yet, in there is, is a real good implication because his name, Lazarus, means the Lord is my helper. It's implied that here was a man in all of his misery who looked to God in faith. And here, in the case of the rich man, was someone who did not. Someone who was Jewish-born. This whole story has a Jewish cast to it as Abraham is the one pictured receiving these folks. That would have been imagery that a Jewish person understood well from Old Testament background. And presumably, this guy was a follower of Israel's religion. He warmed a pew, perhaps, but the gospel of God's grace never warmed his soul, that's for sure. And then further, these men were opposites in the hour of their death. Notice 
about Lazarus. Verse 22 says he died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Not even a word of a funeral. You wonder what happened to his body. Perhaps it was tossed onto those fires in the valley of Hinnom just to get rid of it so he wouldn't be laying in the street neglected. But notice, too, that in the rich man's case, a little detail is there. He died and was buried. Oh, you can picture that funeral. Uh, It was a life celebration. That's what we have. I'm going to comment on that somewhere down the line. Funerals have become life celebrations in our culture. And so this man's life was celebrated. I can see the flowers banked up all over the place from his admiring friends. I can see the several Cadillacs, probably six of them, lined up, ready to take everybody out to the marble sarcophagus with Italian marble carved and gloriously arrayed over his tomb. And that was the end of him. Because while they were opposites in life and remained opposites, everything from that moment on is exactly reversed and turned inside out as everything they had experienced on earth was the opposite in eternity. And so secondly, I ask you to look here at verses 23 to 25 to see some teaching from Jesus on what we'll call the immediate hell of unbelief. Now, I remind you what we talked about more than a month ago, the assurance of the Christian at death, Theologians like to use the word intermediate state. I prefer the term immediate heaven. Heaven can be understood. We're going to talk about it a lot more, Lord willing. can be understood in terms of the immediate experience of the soul with Christ and then the eventual final heaven of the new heaven and new earth when we have resurrection bodies. But if there's an immediate heaven in which we are assured to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, there is an immediate hell. People don't wait until the return of Christ and the great resurrection and the white throne judgment to experience hell. This gives us to understand it happens right away. Just as believers enter bliss, the unbeliever enters woe. It seems like there's no passage of time at all from this man passing away, leaving his mansion, and realizing he is in a place more awful than his mind was ever able to even think about before this. And it's marked by two unhappy words that occur in this text, the word torment in verse 23 and the word agony in verse 25. Now, people wonder, what causes the torment? Is it physical? They always have questions about the flames and the fire. Is it mental torment? Is it spiritual torment? Is it physical torment? And my answer is yes. It's all three. But isn't it interesting that the torment is ascribed by the sufferer himself in this text, in verse 24, to this fire? Now, we want to play that down. We want to say, oh, the cartoonists love to do that. Just forget about fire. That You don't need to think of that. Well, Jesus is teaching here, and he says the man is suffering because of this fire. And I want to just mention to you once again what I believe is the correct biblical understanding of the place of fire in relation to hell. It's not some kind of torture rack sent by God to 
literally burn your fingers away or something like that. Fire is a spiritual reality that is nevertheless a very painful reality. And I think the clue to it is, I mentioned last time, Hebrews 12, 29, that says in a somber passage, our God is a consuming fire. And if we try to unpack that and ask what that means, it's talking about God in in his tremendous holiness, his perfection, his grandeur, in such a way that the Scripture tells us cannot even tolerate the presence of sin, if you were to experience God in his holiness, in his perfect, unstained righteousness, if you were to come to him as you are, unrighteous, and unprotected against perfect holiness, you're in trouble. If you come to him without what you could call the impregnable covering of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that encloses and wraps the believer and protects us from this remarkable glory of God like the incandescence of the sun, you might as well be standing at ground zero of a nuclear bomb going off wearing a bathing suit for all the protection you have. And here's this one-time rich man whose money could buy him anything. It could buy him, if, you know, if he was being sued, he just bought the best lawyer and said, forget about it. I don't have to worry about that. I'll pay, the, pay any fine. I'll, and my lawyer will take care of it. This guy never had to have any trouble. Until he died, of course. But in life, his money could do anything for him, and now his money does nothing for him. He has no protective umbrella. Don't you realize that even the unbeliever in this life has God's protective umbrella of grace over him? We call it common grace, that which does not necessarily save a person. But the good experience that, that keeps us from experiencing, why is it? You know, we go out in traffic, we drive our cars 70 miles an hour with another car 10 feet from us, and and we're not killed instantly every time we do it. God's grace protects us so much of the time. Every person alive today benefits from God's grace. We don't receive the things we deserve day by day, moment by moment. But here is a man who finally faced what he did deserve with no protection. And it gives us an amazing depth. It ought to give us. Every Christian ought to look at this and say, look what my sins deserve. Look what I receive. Look at the destructive thing I face in the perfection of God. The perfection of God would destroy me if I had no covering for sin. We have no true estimate of God's grace or of our sin. At the end of the service today, we're going to sing a hymn we've sung a few times. It's a great hymn. And it has these lines. It says, my sins, exclamation mark. My sins, exclamation mark. My Savior, exclamation mark. And it goes on to say, their guilt, the guilt of my sins I never knew till with thee in the desert I near thy passion drew. Till with thee in the garden I heard thy pleading prayer and saw the sweat drops bloody and heard thy sorrow there. Do you get the theme? 
I never had the correct estimate of my sins until I see what they did to Christ. That's when I wake up, hopefully. The believer wakes up and sees the ugly depths to which our sins sent Jesus Christ. And then you understand how much of an offense our sin, our unrighteousness, our negligence, our selfishness, all these things are to a holy God. Now, the Christian is a person who has already seen that and who by repentance and faith has come to Christ and received his gift of being absolved and being at peace with God. We're not fearing God's holiness anymore. But the unbeliever is the person who first encounters that holiness, that perfection, that awesome, tremendous, yes, the word terror of God would be the right word when he cannot withdraw from it, and when he has no shield to protect against it. Hell is the inevitable disaster of human ungodliness and rebellion facing the perfection of God. And so when you talk about the wrath of God, get away from your imagination or your understanding any idea of the Lord God throwing a temper tantrum. That's not what his wrath is. His wrath is his perfect holiness, resisting and refusing human sin. And hell is when people meet that unredeemed and unprotected. And so you hear this wretched man begging in the the story. Of course, it's a story. We're not to necessarily see that it looks exactly like this, but the truths are are real truths. And he begs. He, look, he, he still thinks he's a man of privilege and arrogance who can order a, a, a nobody like Lazarus to do his bidding. Isn't it interesting? That pride hasn't left him yet. Oh, send that worthless guy Lazarus over here to do something for me. Let him put his finger in cold water and put it on my tongue to give me some relief. And he's told, son, in your lifetime you had all your good things. The same thing Jesus said earlier in Luke 6, 24 to negligent rich people. Woe to you, rich, for you have already had all your comforts. And if you, the implication is if you live entirely absorbed in worldly materialism, this world and the gifts of this world are all you're ever going to gain, not the gifts of the world to come. Thirdly, then, if we go on to verses 26 to the end of the chapter, Jesus teaches here two very solemn, permanent principles about hell. The first is this. Hell has no exit door. In this story, Jesus has Father Abraham telling this sufferer why it is nobody can come and help him and why he can't get out and find relief. Between us and you, a great chasm is fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. A great chasm. I remember when the Berlin Wall was built. I was in sixth grade. It was a bewildering thing to me how overnight soldiers could go to a great city of Europe and string rolls of barbed wire down 
the middle of streets and then run in with concrete blocks and build walls. And many of you will remember, if you're my age or older, people making daring escapes, trying to get out of the communist side, being shot in the attempt as that Berlin Wall was built. And I I think I took it for granted as a young man growing up all through my college years and young adulthood, the Berlin Wall, there it is, there it stands. It will never fall. And for 30 years, it stood. But 20 years ago now, this month, in fact, it was torn down. And the former communist police state and the free West Berlin were merged into one city again. We, we thought it would never happen. Well, there would be those that would say, maybe there's some way that same thing can happen between heaven and hell. But Jesus uses the word here, fixed. Chasm. These positions are fixed. They're cast in concrete. They're fixed by God's eternal decree. Many of you know that C.S. Lewis wrote a delightful little book. It's, a, it's an unusual book. It's called The Great Divorce. It has nothing to do with marriage. It's about the absolute separation between heaven and hell. Just a little short book. You can read it in an hour or more. And it, it, it's a fanciful, fictional book in which Lewis, with his great imagination, pictures a busload of people who are consigned to hell taking a day trip in their bus. Where do they go? They go to heaven to see what it would be like. Well, the fascinating thing is the hell dwellers do not like heaven. They find it entirely unpleasant and entirely unsuited to them because all of their desires are still selfish me desires, and nothing about heaven fulfills those selfish desires. They hate the place. And they get back on their bus at the end and and go back where they belong because they don't want to be there. Well, of course, it was a work of fiction, and Lewis knew that when he wrote it. Hell has no exit gate. There are no bus trips. When an unbeliever arrives there, it's too late to hear the gospel that he's already spurned. It's too late to believe in Jesus as Lord. It's too late to ask for the mercy of God. One man said, hell is the truth known too late. And Scripture shows us that God has extended opportunity after opportunity to mankind for centuries. While humanity lives, God is staying his hand that final day that he will bring when Christ returns and the new heavens and new earth will be formed. He's holding it back, 2 Peter says. In 2 Peter 3.9, that famous phrase that speaks of the Lord's patience. He is patient. He is merciful. Why? Because he is not willing that anyone should perish, but all might come to repentance. That's the heart of God. The heart of God is, let them come. I would that they would come. I'm not a sadist. I'm not wanting to destroy them. The opportunity is extended. And yet perish. People will because they pass the door of death without knowing the way of redemption that God has made in His Son. I think many of you know that in the medieval period, theologians could not endure this fixedness of heaven and hell. They got to thinking about it over time. It was a doctrine that developed slowly in the church, and actually it was in the 1400s, did you know, 
when purgatory really came into being. And you can see why it would come into being, just because this is a hard thing. And so people would say, oh, I just can't stand the idea of, of it being forever fixed. And, and so dipping into the book of Second Maccabees, an apocryphal book that some would include in the Scripture, in 1439, the Roman Council of Florence decreed that there was a place called Purgatory. A spiritual kind of, I've always seen it like a halfway house. And you get some kind, it's never spelled out how or exactly what is involved, but you get some kind of a vague second chance. Didn't you always wish you could take, you know, if you were given another crack at high school, I know I can think of at least two final exams. I was, oh, let me take those again, because now I know what to study. Well, that's kind of what purgatory is. And it's an idea that Rome has never retracted at all. To this day, it remains in their doctrine. And it's not a Protestant Catholic jibe that I take when I tell you it is a foolish doctrine for gullible people, and it is 100% unbiblical. Hell has no exit door. Now, there's another permanent principle that Jesus taught here quickly in John 16 at the end. And it is that mankind has been given all the warning that we need to escape this. You know what Lazarus or the rich man did? He said, oh, my goodness, I finally understand what I did was so stupid. Lord, let somebody go and please. I've got five brothers. I would love to. Isn't it nice? He finally discovered altruism. He wanted somebody else's good at last. Please, Lord, send a messenger to my five brothers. And he's told, no, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the sufficient statement of the word of God. Jesus in Luke eleven twenty eight said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And, and then he goes one step more as if to say, well, no, 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 you don't understand. The Bible's not really enough. What we need is a miracle. So send them somebody who would come back from the dead and could say, here I am, I'm back from the dead, and boy, have I got a story to tell. And he's told, no, even if someone arises from the dead, they will not believe. Do you see the tremendous irony in what Jesus is stating here? He hasn't died himself yet. He hasn't arisen from his own tomb yet, but he will. And he knew that when he... The Son of God came back from the dead. The world didn't say, wonderful, somebody came back from the dead to tell us, oh, isn't it great, because we never knew it before. No. The very people who killed him concocted a plot to cover it up. And Jesus rose from the dead in power. People of faith believed it, embraced him, gave their lives for him. And what did the rest of the world do? They scoffed. They rejected every proof. Because this is the nature of unbelief. It doesn't want proof. It will go its way to any unreasonable length. Even if God has revealed what it could escape from, it will refuse to have the revelation of God. Well, what can we say in conclusion of such a grim text? A couple things. Let me first point out that this rich man never gets a name. 
I think the little details of Scripture are significant. Why does the rich man never get an A? Well, it seems to me he simply is anonymous in the mind of God. Lazarus has a name. Lazarus, the poor pitiful wretch on earth, is named God is my helper. A statement of the theme of his life. Augustine, the great theologian of the ancient church, picked this up and commented on it. Augustine said, God who lives in heaven kept quiet about the rich man's name because it was not written in heaven's record, while the poor man's name was recorded in the Lamb's book of life. God knows his saints by name. He adopts us as his children. He calls us his own. That's a wonderful truth that's here even in this hard story. Suppose the Bible had never told us anything about hell. Some of you are saying, I sure wish you're going to get off this theme pretty. Maybe I'll just skip next week because it sounds like it's going to be more of this awful stuff. Well, suppose the Bible never taught us anything about hell. Would God be more merciful? Would God be more loving if he had not told us, if he had concealed from us the destiny of people who do not know him? What we have learned here in this story in Luke 16 is that the unique spokesman who most insistently announced a dreadful alternative to his salvation is the same great person who died and rose that we would escape this. Don't blame God. Don't blame Jesus Christ for announcing the way of escape. Christ, who warns us so sternly about this, is the one who can deliver us from this. He desires that you come to him and that you receive what he's done by making a way of escape. There are many Scripture passages I could have added that show there's no means of escape from hell. But the gospel of God's love and grace in Jesus says there is an escape as long as you get to it in time. John 5.24 tells us while there's no way of escaping from hell, there's a way of escaping it before the experience comes. John 5.24, Jesus says, whoever hears my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. I love this next phrase. He has crossed over from death to life. Father Abraham told the rich man, nobody crosses over now. Jesus said, there is crossing over. Do it with me. Do it while you live. Do it while the Holy Spirit whispers to your conscience, you need to do this. You cross over in this life, not in the life to come. How we respond to the gospel today really is decisive for eternity. What you do with Christ really counts forever. Our Father, once again, such a hard thing we read. And yet beneath it is your grace. In it is the appeal of your Son to come to him, to cross over now and live. Father, make us agents of that gospel that we might with greater urgency pray and testify 
and make known the only way of escape. In Jesus' name, amen.